0: here. You found it. Nice job. This is actually the Peak Season Podcast. That's right. Yeah, you clicked on the right thing. Good work. I'm your host, Stephan Gregory. Our first one here today is with Mark Allen, who is our founder, Cascadian notable, and just all around solid dude. And if anyone knows him, uh, you don't need me to tell you twice. This interview goes through Mark's more or less Cascadian history growing up and all the ins and outs. I'll let the rest speak for itself, and I'll catch you at the intermission. I don't know, man. What have you been up to at the Bureau lately?
1: Yeah, let's see. What have we been up to? What is it? uh, April 25th? Is that right? Um. Something like that? Uh, so this 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 spring, um, yeah, it's kind of been a, a little bit of a shakeup for my normal springs. Last spring, I was being uh, quarantined in in Norway by the by the federal government, so um, a little bit unique. Uh, this spring, we're kind of back on our feet, but not up to our usual usual happenings of international guiding ski on skis and western and northern europe and i'm here in the north cascades just kind of figuring it all out again and it's i haven't been here uh, in the spring for 10 years so it's it's kind of cool in some aspects it's like i get to sort of relearn this place um, that i grew up in and but uh, it's also uh, a challenging you know, problem to have operationally. Guiding here in the spring is really challenging. It's especially April. It's like this transitional time between winter and summer. I know that sounds dumb, but <laughs> I should say really winter and winter and spring. <laughs> um, uh, April is like kind of the most dramatic month uh, of that transition of the spring shed cycle and the winter snows becoming spring and. Spring like, and uh, there's all sorts of things to know that I just don't uh, at this time. So I'm, sp- I feel like I'm sort of treating this time like uh, someone going through their AMGA ski guides exam. Um, you know, I'm visiting trailheads and reading a bunch of guidebooks and you know trying to get beta from other guides so that I can figure out how to perform. So we've pumped the brakes a little bit on 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 accepting clients this spring and just trying to get our feet on, underneath us. And um, doing a little bit of guiding, you know, I've um, been guiding on Baker, uh, on skis, and, and I've got, you know, a couple trips like Glacier Peak and Shuxin and tours in the North Cascades National Park lined up. But, uh, yeah, predominantly I'm just doing trips like the one I'm doing now, which is uh, kind of a personal trip into the North Cascades National Park with my buddy uh, J.D. Graziano and my neighbor uh, Sam Naney. To kind of explore cirques and passes in the high country that I haven't haven't really had a chance to do because I'm always in, in Western Europe guiding hut trips or at the Lofoten
0: Ski Lodge. And Sam Naney is one of the notable coaches over at Uphill Athlete. Is that right?
1: Yeah, you know he uh, was trained by Scott for a number of years before Uphill Athlete existed, oh. um, as as a, a semi professional, professional. Uh, skate skier and racer. Uh so he's, you know, he's a pretty exceptional athlete. Uh when you see him move in the mountains, you're just like, "Oh my god, that, that it just looks like he has no resistance, you uh-huh. know?" Like compared to the way that you and I Yeah, do. totally. <laughs> um <laughs> but um yeah, he has been promoted to the master coach. Uh so so Steve House and uh, Scott Johnson can take more of a um an ownership and director roles and and he's taking on the coaching with a number of new uh blood in in the company like uh seth kenila who's a also a climbing partner of mine uh, and allison naney sam's wife so yeah, there's uh they've they got an amazing crew, so it's it's awesome to be able to spend some personal time with him in the mountains if you can hang on.
0: Yeah, totally. And for me, working with uphill athlete as a guide, it's been awesome for my clients to have a coach to work through training for the goals on the other side of the coin where I'm bringing the boots on the ground. Let's navigate, clip in, when to start where to go conditions, the coach is really bringing in that fitness component that really helps me out. And I've personally done a number of uphill athlete seasons, rock climbing and mountaineering and only have good things to say.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky enough to, to have, um, these guys just up the road from our home office and, um, yeah, I mean, they're so inspiring to just see what Seth and, and Sam are doing on a weekly basis. It's, it's just, kind of, <laughs> you have to sort of, uh, you know, make sure that you're not taking it, you know, it's like, Oh my God, like, what am I doing with my week? And you see what these guys are doing.
0: and Well, and you're and, just uh, stacked with athletes like that in the Meta, whether they're active or doing things on their rest days that are bigger than anything I've ever done.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, it's, it, you hear about, uh, you know, um, there's always some, Oh yeah, they're moving to the valley, or they've lived here for the last twenty years, and and you know they used to be an an ex olymp, you know they're an ex olympian, or or this and that, or this person was a you know a professional mountain bike rider or whatever. Um, that being said, it it doesn't there isn't like an edge or a scene about it. Everything's kind of being done really quietly in the underground on people's own time, and there isn't like a social platform or whatever or like a you know or a, an oasis in which we're all gathering around and telling running and biking and climbing lies. It's just, it's all these murmurs. It's like, oh, yeah, I just heard, you know, that, that, you know, Drew Lovell just circumnavigated the entire, you know, Gardner Peak Massif on his day off. And you're just like, oh, dude, you know, that's mega. Crazy. And it's just something that, he wanted to do <laughs> right.
0: So. And that's one motivated dude. But do you see that endurance running culture in the business now?
1: That culture, the, the kind of the, the uphill athlete culture, um, the endurance athlete culture, the mountain running culture has become really popular. And, you know, even this year I had a group say, Hey, you know, I'd love to take a, a, a skills course from you, uh, for glacier travel. Um, you know, two of the North face running athletes, uh, approached us for teaching them crevasse rescue and they want to do it cause they want to do schema races and big, you know, personal traverses, uh, with the, you know, lightest equipment possible. And that was not a thing that we were approached with in the past. So the, the trend is changing. And now two people have asked me to do mountain running, uh, courses for them and glacier travel. So we have to kind of pare things down so that they can, uh, you know go on these trips and have the right equipment but not be barred down by big climbing ropes and harnesses and heavy equipment that mountaineers and alpinists typically use
0: totally and we're gearing up for summer now uh, what does that preparation look like for you at the Bureau these days for the last ten
1: years I predominantly was an independent guide um, so I didn't do a lot of like summer preparation other than talking to a handful of clients um, you know since we were sort of forced to change our model and our, I mean, the Bureau is now kind of bigger than me, um, it was predominantly just a vehicle for me to independently guide in the Northwest and in Europe and in Peru and Alaska directly with uh, the public, um, but... COVID really forced me to scale because my whole market went from national to the state of Washington and my products went from international and domestic to just the state of Washington. So in order to continue to be a mountain guide, rather than hang up my tools and boots for professionally, I, I, um, had to scale and kind of enter the public market and, public programming. So where I think in the past, I really used this spring to go to work for Seth Hobby and Northern Alpine guides over in Norway for the Lofoten ski lodge for the last 10 years. Um, you know, now we're uh, myself and Justin Rotherham, my program director are, are basically gearing up, tooling up for a big summer of public programming and trying to provide work for a number of local guides like yourself and, you know, Chris Simmons and Zach Novak and Shane Robinson. We're trying to keep all those guys busy and we built a website and and, and went for it. So we ended up, yeah, scaling. So this summer's preparation is significantly different than it has been in the past where it was kind of, I don't know, I, I ran my entire business off of a laptop and my email, and it, it just reached a critical mass that I wasn't gonna be able to do that anymore given the new environment. So I, I yeah, dove in with both feet. And uh, so we're, we're working hard on, on preparing for the summer like we haven't in the past.
0: Oh, that's awesome. The website's looking good and it seems like we're teeing up for a really big season. Um, I do wanna depart from kinda of what's currently happening and dive into the past a bit and talk about your time at Western Washington University in the geology program. Uh,
1: I went to uh, Western. I was part of the geology department. I was under um, the leadership of Liz, Dr. Liz Shermer and Ned Brown, and I was really focused on uh, the structural geology. The mountain building process is what I gravitated towards, and I also had kind of a an interest in uh, the geophysics element, so I did kind of head that direction too. Um, the, ge- the geophysics portion... Is is basically, you know, how do you it, yeah? It's like how do you understand better the geology that we already kind of know about. So if if you know about the structure of the mountains, you can use geophysics to kind of look at them a little bit closer with different um, data sets. One of them being like gravity or magnetism or how sonic waves travel through the material and so you can start you know basically doing really cool things like predicting how deep uh, a magma chamber is below the surface of the ground without digging a single hole so
0: are sonic waves Um, telling you like density then or something like that
1: yeah i mean to get kind of really nerdy they basically uh the sonic wave speed will change depend on how what type of medium it's traveling through so if it's Soil versus uh, granite, or even higher resolution if it's granite versus schist, or um, schist, uh, you know, or like a uh, basalt magma versus uh, rhyolite magma. Like all of those things have specific speeds and reflection, ref, reflection and refraction of those waves that have been measured and and documented. And so once once something hits. Uh, that material and changes its rate we can kind of look at what type of material we're looking at no
0: way that's rad. based
1: on the speed of the sonic wave yeah it's pretty cool i mean then it's like just take it
0: i would definitely take it one more and then it's like so it's like this one so if you play like the grateful dead it's definitely granite for sure and then dubstep (laughs) really gets you that basalt you know like i'm sure you could break it down into frequency and all that that's crazy
1: well yeah it'd be sort of like is this the grateful dead that sounds like the chipmunks or is it the grateful (laughs) dead that sounds like like drunk trump like which one okay does that would be a little bit more appropriate okay
0: interesting fair (laughs) fair
1: and are we and are we hearing it in china or are we hearing it in Chile?
0: whoa (laughs) that's insane yeah how old were you when you were doing that
1: uh, I must have been 20. Yeah, it was, that was kind of later in my, in my bachelor of science at Western for geology. Um, but I did go, go pretty deep in the structural geology and ended up doing a mapping project in uh, the North Cascades National Park. That was um, basically um, an unanswered question, uh, really close to uh, south of Cascade Pass and north of Glacier Peak along the Ptarmigan Traverse. Sorry, I just uh, I totally just blew all of the rules. Oh, you're, you're good. Here, stand by. Okay, I'll just turn that off. Um, yeah, so our field area was basically encompassed um, like Mixup Mountain, um, Cascade or Cascade Mountain, Mixup Mountain. Um, I would say a portion of Johannesburg to help us give us a little bit of context. Uh, but predominantly it encompassed uh, uh, mix up Mountain, Spider Mountain, Hurry Up Peak. Mount Formidable was kind of the, the, the study zone right around the Middle Cascade Glacier, kind of that first two days of the, of the uh, ptarmigan traverse. Or I should say first few hours, depending on who you are.
0: <laughs> okay, well, it makes a lot of sense because anytime you and I talk about that zone, you know it so intimately well. I was always curious as to why. So I'm starting to get it now.
1: Yeah, I spent an entire summer mapping it, uh, July and August, um, coming up uh, the middle Cascade Glacier Road, uh, coming over through Cash Coal, and then uh, at the very end, you know, the whole time I'd been in there, I hadn't been uh, past, uh, let's see, Yang Yang Lakes, which is um, just farther south of, of Mount Formidable there, and or Rat Creek Drainage, and... My brother um, was living in New York at the time, working for a software company, and and I was like, Jay, we gotta um, we gotta do the Tarmigan Traverse. I've never done it, so uh, he flew out, and I, crazy story is uh, this is just, this is September 11th, right right You know, this is after September 11th. Uh, the the terrorists had bombed the Twin Towers. Jay was in New York. We had planned this trip. He's stuck in New York. There's no one flying, and he caught the first flight out of New York to come to Seattle to do the ptarmigan Traverse with me. And I had like, I had all these um, leftover, you know, food caches and things like that. And I had a little bit of funding left over from the North Cascades National Park to spend and on fuel and food. And so we used that those resources to to run this trip. And and he caught that first plane out of New York, and then we. Uh, did the ptarmigan traverse by foot in September uh, and climbing a few peaks along the way, but we got to Cub Lake near Glacier Peak, and these guys were like, "Oh my God, did you hear? <laughs> did you there I mean, it was that that new Whoa. like these guys thought we were out in the mountains when uh when the terrorist attack on Twin towers happened, so it' was, that just kind of time stamps everything, for yeah, me yeah. On that. That's insane. But yeah, it was a it was a good good time to be in the mountains to help me learn the Cascades and the drainages a bunch and the geology of and really uh, understand the complexity of of the Cascade crystalline core of the North Cascades. It's a really special geologic problem. It's one of the few, um, yeah, terrain t- terrain accretions, um, you know, in the in the United States, and so it's it's a it's a cool, yeah, it's some really complex, interesting geology for sure.
0: Dude, that's a really cool experience that you get to map a part of the Cascades. Uh, I mean, you've spent time doing new routes and first ascents in the North Cascades, which to a degree is mapping. You're mapping a, a feature essentially. And one of the ones I've always stared up at uh, as a young climber in Washington was the early winter spires and Southern Man. And I'm sure there's a, a long history of climbing on that side of the early winter spires. Uh, that was put up with you and two of your friends. Is that right?
1: Those the, 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 Our trio went and ticked this thing off. We uh, got to the triangular ledge versus the uh, a variation of the Becky Lean route. And then uh, left the triangular ledge where we thought we were entering new terrain. We were heading up uh, this, you know, kind of dirty dihedral system, very shallow and but very aesthetic uh, on the south face of, of the spire and right towards this huge overhang, very imposing. And I'm leading the pitch. And I'm like, holy shit, there's like, uh, you know, there's pitons, old ones uh that are in the you know in actually no joel led that pitch i'm seconding it and i'm admiring that there's this old hardware so leanne and i are climbing up and i'm like oh so we didn't get the first ascent so we're in the this alcove the steep overhanging belay um and we uh we pound in our own pins because we don't have a bolt kit with us and um we take off, and, and that was the last time we kind of saw any evidence or of archaeological evidence of prass climbing. So I just – we went, and um, it was, you know, super steep leading out. Uh, Joel, again, led that pitch on as aid, and then um, I took the helm and led the next two pitches, the next one being a, an aid pitch as well. It's pretty dirty. You couldn't have climbed it natural that day unless you were um, Uli Steck. So basically – we topped out pretty close to dark and ended up descending, walked uh, down the Blue Lake Trail and then hit the uh, highway and then had to walk back to the hairpin to get our car. I I totally remember oh, that bummer. that night. It was like a beautiful star-filled night. There was no traffic. Um, you know, Washington Pass was certainly a destination, but like at that time, you know, Ian's book hadn't come out yet. The Red Fred and, and I think a Jim Nelson book were the only two guidebooks for the area and Mountain Project probably wasn't even a thing yet. So um, it was it was Washington Pass was still a pretty quiet place to be, especially at, at 11 o'clock at night <laughs> and in August. <laughs> but uh, right. Yeah, so I went down and we told um, uh, Brian Bordeaux about it and he was uh, he was still, um, pretty spry at that time, and, and climbing up at the pass. Still, um, he uh, and I racked my brain about why, because I, I was trying to figure out whose hardware was that. And uh, we tr- reached out to a few people that that might know, and and no one was coming up with anything. But I looked in the Red Fred and was able to put a piece together that it's it was the. It was the first ascent party that started in the gully between um, North and South Early Winter Spire. Climbed the few pitches that we did, which is known today as the variation of the Becky Lean, but it was actually uh, not the Becky Lean at all. It was it was this line that goes up these five nine flakes, and you get to this kind of wide corner. And back in the day, they didn't have cams, so they they hand drilled these quarter inch bolts to protect the wide crack. We, you can still see the studs today. And then they got to the triangular ledge and then, I believe, continued up the pitch that we thought we were requesting and pounded in um, our hardware and then did a two-pitch pendulum because they had a party of four people. Three of them were jugging the lines. It was taking them a dog's age to get up there. remind you, this is 1960 uh 66 or 67. And then
0: real quick, so they're they're kind of corkscrewing around the mountain. Is that how I understood it? Yeah,
1: exactly. So they're they're corkscrewing clockwise around fr- around the south face and then they uh, hit the triangular ledge which Becky uh, hasn't been to yet. No one's been. This is actually the first attempt of any any free climbing attempt of any of the East faces everything to date had was was aid climbing like even up to A4 on the east face um at that time but so this is the first kind of free climbing attempt that had been made and by i mean
0: by climbing standards too like unconventional in the sense that usually they take the straightest line but i guess this was the path that was allowing them the most access to the mountain so i guess that makes yeah. sense yeah
1: and this is like the first time that that people had really come in from the Metau valley every or i should say not from Twist Pass. Um uh, you know the highway had been dozed enough at that time they were letting people up on the weekends to to go quest things and and uh, Becky uh Becky was on uh putting up the west face at the same uh, of North Early Winter Winterspire.
0: The west okay, face. Okay, so he's route, on the other that, side.
1: He's on the other side that same weekend. They actually carpooled together to get What? Uh, Yeah. To get these guys in there. And uh, so it's this team of like Becky's on the other side um, with a partner, Dave. I can't remember his last name. Um, And, you know, putting up the West Face, these guys are corkscrewing around the South Early Winter Spire. They hit that alcove. Ricochet did a two pitch pendulum over to the top of what is now known today as the Inferno Route. Uh, and then once you get to the top of the Inferno route, and some people might know this ledge from climbing Hitchhiker or uh, the Escargo route, um, is that you hit this terrace that you can actually walk. Or very, it's very pedestrian. It's it's, it's still fourth class, fifth class, but you you can get to the south or south of Rhett at that time. So this party climbed the same pitch as we did to the alcove. Did a two pitch pendulum, hit the Inferno ledge, walked that climbed it up to the South Arette, which hits you at like the upper three quarters of the South Arette, And then they took the South Arette to the summit. So it was like the most secured line you could possibly imagine.
0: Totally. <laughs> but, and I, I would be remiss to to not tell the listeners that uh, you're also the president of the Metal Valley Climbers. And it's clear your passion hearing you talk about the, the early winter spires uh, and how much you've been in the area. Uh, when did the Metau Valley Climbers start?
1: Yeah. Uh, the Metau Valley Climbers uh, is par- is a chapter of the Washington climbing coalition. So I'd have to say um, you know, that's you know, that's they started uh, when index became um well, I should say when Index was shut down because uh, there was a death in the family that owned the property, the quarry, and that uh, that new ownership was not psyched about the public, it being a public climbing area, so they shut it down. The WCC was formed, um, I don't know exactly what year that was, but I'm guessing it was around 2010, 2009, when all that was going down. We formed the chapter when I moved back to the Meadow Valley permanently um, I believe it would be in 2018 yeah that sounds about right maybe 17 and it was clear that you know the community was getting bigger you know we were seeing a lot more visitation because of the route prime rib and the uh, installation of Flyboys so we were we had kind of some growing pains that were happening in the valley and you know, honestly my community was reaching out to me, I wouldn't say they're reaching out to me uh, at all. It was more like I had been um, away professionally uh, you know and and interacting with the AMGA, the, the uh, American Alpine Club, uh, fundraising for the WCC and had all these networks and I lived in Seattle for three years. So that really helped us um, with the networking to start something and actually solidify a some type of nonprofit or a climbers group in the Metel Valley to sort of deal with the growing pains that we're dealing with. And I approached Dave Havoc from the WCC and asked him, or and asked him, hey, like, how did you start the WCC and how does someone start a climbing club? And he's like, well don't <laughs> just 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 become uh just become a chapter we're trying this out we're trying this on for size we'll see how it does and we got a really dedicated group and those guys are amazing at how much time and effort they put into it uh we did a really good job the first two years uh, mo- uh getting motivated we raised twenty nine thousand dollars um for Fun Rock to give it a facelift, and we re- we worked really hard with the Forest Service, um, and I we really have to give a shout out to Zach Winters. He's the climbing ranger, and uh, with the Metal Valley Ranger District. And if it wasn't for people like Zach, then I don't know that the WCC chapter would actually exist or be as successful because we have an advocate in the Forest Service. I mean, that dude's amazing. It's like we we'll mention something about what we want done in a meeting. And like within like 14 days later, he's like, yeah, I got the blue bag kiosks up and uh, we got those signs you guys talked about. Yeah. They're up too." no way. (laughs) You're like, Oh, uh, we're still fundraising for that project. (laughs) And to get,
0: it just showcases the importance of collaborating with nonprofits, land managers and helping fill in the gaps where, they have so much land to manage and sometimes not enough resources to do so. And we have a bunch of motivated people at climbing organizations that can come in and bridge that gap.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, we have a great, I really also wanted to reach out to the community. I didn't, I don't have um, uh, professional access to the corridor uh, because of the moratorium on commercial access there. So it's, uh, it was just a really great way for me to sort of take my, um, my unfettered energy and like put it into, uh, something local since I'm not able to work professionally, uh, on the spires. So that was kind of a, it definitely had manifested itself in, in the Mattel Valley climbers. And it was just a great way for me to sort of reintroduce myself to the community that I was a huge part of, you know, t- I'd say 10 years ago and had, you know, less and less to do as I was sort of figuring out my professional life and going through the AMGA process and whatnot, guiding internationally and such. So moving back to the Metau Valley full-time definitely spearheaded the the inception of the Metau Valley climbers.
0: That's awesome. Well, we've talked kind of a ton about the domestic work and domestic climbing. Before we kind of depart for the podcast, I wanted to dive into a little bit of something that I I knew you for early on uh, was your alpine climbing and then particularly a a route you called the Mastodon Face up in Alaska. All right, folks. That music means it's time for an intermission. We're going to talk a little bit about what the Mountain Bureau is up to this summer. Uh, the Mountain Bureau clearly is the sponsor of this podcast. So, notably, this summer we have some cool stuff going on I want to talk about. Uh, the West Ridge of Forbidden, really, really ridiculously classic alpine rock route in North Cascades infamous Boston Basin Uh, we are very fortunate to have a permit reservation and some availability July 19th through the 22nd and September 2nd through the 5th this means that you do not have to wait in line that morning and possibly not get a permit and do something different we already have that backcountry reservation pick it up and go so if that's something that interests you you want to learn more head over to mountainbureau.com and then go to scheduled programs Under the Scheduled Programs tab, we also have some awesome programs on Shuckson, Baker, and some mountaineering courses. So you want to learn more about that, check out Scheduled Programs. If those dates aren't lining up for you, we do offer custom programs. Alpine climbing, rock climbing, rescue skills, kind of whatever you need. We run a ton of custom programs throughout the year, and this works really well to fit into your schedule the best way that we can make it happen. Uh, Check out Custom Programs, we do everything from long rock climbs like infinite bliss on Mount Garfield and Flyboys on the goat wall to cragging, to crevasse rescue, backpacking skills, pretty much whatever you need. Check out custom programs, shoot us an email, ask us a question. We're here to help and we're psyched. All right. Thanks for enduring the intermission. Now back to the interview with Mark.
1: Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. Did you have a specific question about it, or did you want me just to ramble? <laughs> no,
0: because <that's, laughs> I, mean, I can do both. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it, it, it's just interesting, like how, you know, essentially we, we met through guiding and um, started working together that way. But I had always heard, like, your name referenced uh, with Graham climbing in Alaska. And uh, I believe the Mastodon face was a PLA Or nominated climb. And it just looked like a pretty remote face. And then you picked your way through, it seemed like fairly objectively hazardous terrain, and maybe just kind of give me, yeah, like the 30,000-foot view of that trip?
1: Yeah, I, if I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say, well, first, I, I met Graham when he was, uh, I, I don't know if he was 16 or 17, I can't remember which one it was, but he could, yeah, he could drive. Young, yeah. he so was a young he, guy. <laughs> he took, yeah, I'll keep that portion brief, but he basically, we, I was guiding uh, for the American Alpine Institute running a 12 day Alpine course. And Graham's family was like, you need, if you want to, if you're interested in this, you need to get some training. And so they, he put him, he enrolled himself in my class. And so I taught him how to play and glacier travel and think about objective hazard and weather and all that. And, um, I made the, uh, Um, I, I think as a, as a young guide, you make this mistake a lot (laughs) and you would say, Hey, yeah, let's keep in touch and we should get out sometime. (laughs) And I think, uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I love the fact that Graham stayed in my life. It was, it was pretty awesome. But like, I think it was like four weeks went by and he was like, he was like tenting in my backyard, uh, and we were climbing. Uh, at Washington Pass, and then he came out in the winter when I was cutting my teeth as an ice climber, and we, you know, tooled around on Goat Wall and actually put up a first ascent on Goat Wall, a couple of them, and then even some Steve House repeats. Uh, There's a funny story there that I won't dive into, but, um, yeah, so we knew each other, and then then didn't see each other for a long time. I moved to Ure uh, in the winters, and he went to... uh, school in Dunedin in New, in new Zealand. And so, uh, and, and both of us kind of went our separate ways and then continued to um, experiment with climbing and, and become quite proficient with ice climbing and, and alpine climbing uh, separately. And then uh, just kind of uh, darkened each other's door one time and we're like, dude, we gotta do something together with, with all these new kind of skills that we have. And we both really wanted to go to Alaska I had just been to Alaska for a month and had some pretty good success with uh, Philippe Wheelock, and um, we, you know, climbed the Moose's Tooth and the uh, we made an attempt of a new route on Peak Eleven Three Hundred. We climbed Eleven Three Hundred. We climbed um, yeah a variety of different objectives in that area. We made an attempt on a new route on Dan Beard. Uh, lots of failing, but lots of success and. Uh, Graham and I went and did a trip in 2010 in the Ruth Gorge. We established a route called um, Vitology on Mount Bradley. And that was kind of like, whoa, holy shit, we're actually, we can we can do this. Uh, now, it was a little uncalculated how big we went, but um, we ended up going out for 100 hours instead of our, our planned 30 So that was – but we learned that we had, like, the skills and the fortitude to, like, deal with Alaska in a way that we didn't fully realize. On a trip to the uh, Lacuna Glacier, where we were doing some exploratory alpinism, um, uh, trying – we wanted – the main goal was to try to climb the Infinite Spur of uh, Foraker. We did not want to go up Denali and and acclimatize – uh, we wanted to do some climbing and naively tried to acclimatize down lower on th- something called the Finn, which um, we ended up climbing a sub peak and naming it um, the Voyager Peak. And when we were on the summit of Voyager, uh, we were looking south and we're like, what the heck is that? And both of us, you know, kind of knew the range pretty well. Um, uh, but yeah, it was like this face that was pretty steep fairly decent prominence in the area and uh we're like what is that thing and so we did some research and we couldn't really find anything about it, it didn't have a name it uh, didn't have an elevation even on the usgs map so it um, actually had been named we didn't realize that it had been climbed by uh recreationally climbed by a um, an austrian thomas bubendorfer who had the speed wrecker on the eiger for like you know, I don't know, like 15 years or something like that um, before Uli blew it up. But, um, yeah, so we honestly had picked this objective out of a photograph. Graham's like, that's what I want to do this season. I want to go back and climb that thing. And we had named it the Macedon um, by a photograph because from Voyager Peak, looking at that face, it just looked like this massive elephant's face, you know, just uh. big tusks of hanging glaciers and you know it was massive steep kind of scary mastodons are you know basically woolly mammoths and they're but they're carnivorous <laughs> they're the they're the animal the megafauna that was roaming around in the Pleistocene in, in North America Um, so yeah big big elephants tusk of us a, of, a, of a rib coming down so it just yeah we persona you know we created some um, uh, you know, an element of character uh, with that face and, and kind of a love affair with it. We came back to get there. Uh, it required Paul pioneering a new landing strip in the Lacuna, and, um, and people had skied through the Lacuna Glacier, but no one had gone up the, the I guess it would be the southwest fork of the Lacuna Glacier, and I think we were the first humans to, to head up there and stand below that face, and that was the east face of uh, Mount Lawrence. Which was uh, a peak that had been climbed probably, I don't know, 10 years before. We didn't even know that it had a name until we were flying out, and Paul Roderick was like, Oh, you're going to do that one? Oh, yeah, that's Mount Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> and then turns out, like, Joe Purrier had actually, like he had put it, he'd mentioned it in his, uh, super topos guidebook. It's like, there's like, I think two sentences about it in, in, in the super topos book in the back of just like an obscure peak. Um, and then when we basically climb the peak, we were the first ones to ground truth. It's elevation of like ten thousand fifty feet
0: or something. Got it. That's funny. Yeah. You love that when you're like going out for a new route and they're like, Oh yeah, I did that a while ago. You're like, Oh Cool. That's awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I was talking about. Yeah. With, with, with doing like, uh, Steve House's second ascent type thing. Like, you know, I was, I was getting my snowmobile repaired by one of Steve House's good climbing partners in the Mattel Valley, Otis Buzzard. And he was like, He's like, oh, yeah, I've climbed that route that you're describing. Yeah, I climbed that with Steve House. And I was like, sure enough, when Graham and I climbed this, like, water ice four in this very dark corner of the goat wall area, uh, we found the stopper at the top of uh, it. And it was this Metolius stopper. I knew Steve was sponsored by Metolius yep. at the time. There's very few people that would have been out there at the yep. time. And so and so I cleaned it. I was like, shucks, that wasn't a first ascent after right. all. You know, you missed the we just missed it. And then Otis – and I said, Yeah. And Otis said, Did you find a stopper at the top? And I'm like, Yeah, we did. I actually used it for the belay. He's like, Yeah, Steve couldn't clear it. And so we named the route my left nut. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, okay. Which pretty much <laughs> which pretty much described like how Steve felt about the climb. Got it. And like not only was like my Sort of like personal, uh, y- you know, idea of what that climb was. Did it? Was it completely deflated by <laughs> not only it being a second ascent, but like what the first ascensionist thought about the the climb? Oh uh, yeah, and so exactly,
0: you're like my baby. No, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, gone. I mean, it's not a very classic route at all. It's, but it, it yeah, definitely adventurous to say the least. Funny. But yeah, the Mastodon face, We uh, Graham and I uh, finally got a base camp um, at the base of the fork there and made, I believe, three attempts on the face in a variety of different ways. And it turned out to be, I mean, we just, we went for the most direct way. It turned out to be just really dangerous, uh, loose flakes. Like one of, it was just climbing Belair Slayers. And really good rock. it's just it was just hard to know, like was it actually attached to the mountain? And so we bailed there and down climbed. And each time, you know, we were trying to establish ourselves on the face, but we couldn't get high enough to bivy. And so we ended up having to like bail,, uh, you know, three times beating the sun as it's coming around. Uh. Um, and it's, yeah, it's it's uh, it gets sun pretty early. So we ended up, took more of a northeast side of it um it was you know we were kind of you know uninterested in the route you know we less interested than the more direct way and we ended up you know going for it and making it it turned out to be pretty brilliant climbing and um lots of things to consider and challenges and I remember at one point during the route you know Graham's like I don't know. I just don't think we're moving fast enough because we were moving really slow at one point. We got into these like basically the equivalent of kind of the Patagonian, um, the vertical, you know, I, vertical facets, the rime uh, ice, uh-huh. and just like d- digging to try to make progress and like like mantling on your tool to like try to get your feet a little higher after you dig through the facets. Um Yeah, it was just some wild, wild climbing, all sorts of, like, inventive new ways that I'd never used my body in the Alpine to get through. And then, you know, I remember Graham at one point saying, you know, we're just not moving fast enough. He's like, I don't think we're going to make it. And I just, I don't know where it came from in me, but I was like, Fat Lady is not sung, bro. (laughs) We are going, we do not know. if We we just got to keep moving. And, like, I don't know, going down the way we came seemed pretty pretty involved so i'd rather use my energy to go up um and it was not difficult to get graham spun around at that (laughs) point i mean the guy's an amazing climber and super resilient so um but i do remember that kind of that dynamic that happened and and that happened which never happened when we were on the vitology which probably should have because we should have turned (laughs) around uh but uh, this time it was like I just felt like we had jetpacks on for some reason because we would gotten through this really, really difficult section. And, and I was like, oh, man, that cannot all be for naught. So we ended up uh, kind of scarily wallowing through this um, like 35 to 40 degree wind slab that had been basically generated over the last like 72 hours. And so we were just like praying that it had been – had enough time to cure and bond but we were definitely exposed uh wallowing up the that snow and finally got through it and onto the ridge and were able to bivy finally and getting on the ridge was also like pretty pretty wild there's these overhanging gargoyle cornices that were there and the way the only way that we were able to protect ourselves was to take the double ropes and i don't know if this was dumb or not but it felt like really really secure at the time um we took one of the ropes and literally threw it over the ridge underneath the cornices, and then one of our partner would lead out, Graham would lead up, and he'd dig this massive hole and give me a body belay. Um, and, um, and then when it, when it came time and I, I couldn't actually like clear the rope around the cornice because it was underneath uh, and off the wrong side of the ridge, I'd just untie, and he would pull it in and pull it into the anchor so I had at least a, a tether to his, his belay. And then we were basically belaying these huge, sweeping, you know, like 50-meter pendulums um, off a of body belay and like an ice axe back up um, on the ridge. Just very classic mountaineering-style, old-school old, old school protection.
0: Nutty. Well, that sounds like a wild trip, dude. And then you came back, and then how is? the PLA to or nominates climbs for the year. Is or like a process, like do they contact you or something?
1: Yeah. You know, honestly, I didn't really even know. I don't, I never paid attention to that stuff. I know I'd heard about the PLA to or in the past because, uh, you know, Steve house and, and, um, uh, uh, other, you know, other Americans were winning it at the time. Um, know I, I didn't know that we had even made the short list <laughs> but apparently there's a committee uh, of people that get together and they look at all of the climbs um, that have been established and reported to the American up or this respective journals of each country and they collect them and kind of make a, sh- a long list and then they get it down to a short list and the short list is technically the um, is is a pretty proud list in itself and then they actually select nominees from that short list and that that's when they actually reach out to you um and I was I was guiding a client uh, my client Phil in Urea we we're we we're I I was actually teaching him how to do some dry tooling on Camp Bird Road and and I get this um you know email in my pocket uh we were checking it out and and it's from Graham, and it says, "Hey, do you want to go to France?" And it was basically the invitation to the the Pille D'Or. He's like, "Do you want to go?" And I was like, Pfft, uh, "Yeah, does the Pope wear a dress?" Like, let's <laughs> l- let's let's go. This this I mean, I thought it was a, I thought it was a spam. Honestly, I thought it was a joke. I was like, "Why the heck did they choose our climb?" Because I remember sitting in camp, having failed three times on the direct line. And, you know, we climbed a version of the face, you know, pioneered the the east face, the north face. And um, I just felt, I, I remember saying to Graham, you know, had we been successful, I bet you that would have been nominated for the Pile or <laughs> <Funny. laughs> So we ended up, we ended up still being nominated. We, they flew us there. They treated us like royalty. It was a pretty cool time. Um you know, there was—Uli uh, Steck was nominated for his uh, solo ascent of Annapurna. Um, you know, you had Raphael Sawinski, Um oh, Legend. It was there. Uh, yeah, and so it, it, there was a number of, you know, heroes of mine, and then you have uh, George Lowe, you know, as one of the— oh, wow, the The—, the people running the charter and, uh, Catherine Destivelle Oh my god, the god! who legend, like, after legend. Our climb, climb to the world. Yeah. So it was pretty, pretty surreal for me. I, I kind of felt like, um, you know, like the, the unassuming farmer that's at the Olympics, <laughs> you know, like the, the guy that didn't, wasn't really trying, turned out the rest of the world thought what he was doing was pretty cool. And, um, we were and we went, but, you know, I think what really, you know, a lot of the other nominees that year, you know, like, um, like uh, Simon Andromatin was also uh, a nominee that year, and you know, like those guys all had been climbing like super remote, big, big roots on 7,000 meter peaks in like you know, the Karakoram or the Him or the Himal. A lot of the things were in the Himal, and I think that. I think the French and Lindsey Graham from the UK. He's um, one of the editors. He's. I think it was really his doing that got us in the mix. I think he was just tired of kind of seeing the same old thing play out over and over again, and he really liked how two, you know, young bucks who were not professional climbers, showed up, um, quested super deep into a national park in. Um, a very well-known area, being Denali National Park, um, and went and found, like, an unclimbed face in an unclimbed glacier in the United States. And I think that was, like, for them, that all kind of fit together as, like, a, a crescendo of of the experience that they're trying to celebrate rather than just the hardest line in the world, you know. And one of the things during during the or um Ceremony in Cumayr, Italy. Uh, I remember Simon saying, "It's not about um, it being a hard line; it's about it being the easiest line up the hardest mountains."
0: Huh, that's cool.
1: And I was like, "Huh. Well, that pretty much describes exactly what we did. <laughs> 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 we <laughs> we picked the path of least resistance. <laughs> uh, not not true, but uh, you know, I think." You know, there are paths of least resistance. I mean, it was soloed, after all, up the West Ridge, you know, Mount Lawrence. Sure.
0: You know, it still clocked it at M6, M7, something like that, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Graham led, still to this day, one of the most impressive leads I've seen in the mountains, an M7 on-site. Very, very time-consuming through uh, some kind of rotten rock that led to a uh, a very— thin um thin section of ice that led to some more supportive ice above that but you've'm there's number of photos of it I'm sure you could find one yeah. somewhere but yeah it looks like a pitch like in it looks like a pitch like in the ura ice park yeah, <laughs> cool. It's super wild uh but yeah i was I had a hard time seconding it at the time and we were um I, you know I was doing with an, we we're both doing overnight packs so
0: Right. Well, and then that was the
1: that was the first pitch.
0: <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, that'll that'll wake you up in the morning. Well, and then Graham's just become such a he's a bit of a name alpine climber, and um, yeah, having roots coming from climbing with you, it's it's probably pretty cool to see that. And then he's also done uh, some clinics with the Mountain Bureau uh, last fall, right? <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, it's really cool to see where Graham has taken climbing, and he's definitely um, been far more fo- focused on the um, exploratory alpinism, um, where I kind of took uh, the more uh, professional guiding approach to my time in the mountains in the last uh, 10 years. So, uh, yeah, it's it's been amazing to watch what he's done with training and, and his diet and, and just you know his curiosity. It's been really fun, and then now you know uh, BedWorks. You know we made all these little shitty videos for outdoor research when we were in our in our partnership of of climbing things, and and we made they were like on these basically like flip phones, so the quality was super low, but like the the I think that experience really kicked off uh, Bed um, Bedrock Film Works.
0: Totally. Well, I'll, I'll throw some of that in the show notes, um, some of Graham's work with Bedrock and that film. And uh, mostly, I just want to thank you for taking the time today. And um, I want you to kind of shout out to the Bureau. How how can people connect with you uh, this spring and summer for guiding?
1: Yeah. So, well, clearly, uh, the easiest way would be just to go to our website and kind of shop around. And, and that's how you can find out about kind of our up to date programs and now I will say that um, you know we're definitely transitioning for me be just being an independent guide and uh, going to a more public facing so we haven't put all of our programs on there like you know the Matterhorn and and Peru but we're not really operating because of the whole COVID pandemic to that level quite yet so we're really focusing on the Pacific Northwest Alaska um, and Cody Wyoming at the moment um, until things open up a little bit, and then we'll turn on the European programs and Peru and Alaska uh, to, to greater magnitudes. But, um, yeah, go to the website. We've got you know an awesome network of local guides. Um, all the guides that we hire and work with are, are working within their scope of practice, uh, are either in training through the American Mountain Guides Association uh, under supervision or they're licensed through the American Mountain Guides Super, uh, Mountain Guides Association in their, um, in their discipline, and um, yeah, we just really support kind of that. Uh, we want we want credentialed guides working with the public, and we want to give the public the best possible experience. And so we're, we're just trying to gear up to take care of people's needs on you know alpine climbing or skills courses or if they want to learn how to rock climb um, all of those things we can take care of we can you can have join a public trip or you can uh, get a crew together or if if you can swing it then come out by yourself and we'll give you an amazing tour in the North Cascades but if it's rock climbing alpine climbing or a mountain skills course related then that is definitely in our wheelhouse we love to curate people's experience that they want to achieve uh, if it's not going to be encapsulated in one of our public courses um, yeah we know this place pretty well this is uh, my local haunt
0: So oh, thanks so much man really appreciate your time and we'll see you up there this summer hey thanks so much for tuning into this first episode uh, this show cannot be done without your support keep checking in we're going to keep having awesome guests and most importantly awesome musicians like DJ Mantis and the Black Swedes these guys are awesome Find them on Bandcamp. Please support them and we'll see you next time around. Thank you.